Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, Who or What is the Man of Sin? Today on Words of Grace, I want to direct your attention to a passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and Paul's prediction, or prophecy, if you will, of an evil, deceptive character who will be personally destroyed by the Lord Jesus Christ at his return, at his second coming. As we introduce this concept to you today, I'll say both in introduction and review that last week on Words of Grace— We considered similar passages from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. In that broadcast, we first considered in brief the case for amillennialism based upon multiple passages that predict the resurrections of the just and the unjust as a simultaneous event, John chapter 5 being one of those, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, and the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Those that have done good shall come forth to the resurrection of life, those that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. And again, any good that we do comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and those that are not born again, those who do not know him, all they have ever done is evil, because without faith it's impossible to please God, and so everything that they would do would be offensive to him. And at the same time, faith is a fruit of the Spirit, literally Christ in you, the hope of glory. But if you noticed from that passage, the resurrection of the just and the unjust will occur simultaneously. It's a simultaneous event at the call of Christ. Also, as we considered the concept of amillennialism, that the thousand-year reign has reference to the church age, but there are people literally reigning with Christ in glory after their martyrdom throughout the church age, as Satan is bound that he should deceive the nations no more, the nations having reference to Gentile people. Christianity, again, has been a Gentile institution since Acts chapter 13, when Paul said, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. But we considered the fact that the destruction of the universe will occur on the same day that the Lord returns, the day of the Lord, which is the day of the resurrection, which is the last day. And so as we read in John chapter 11, the dead are raised on the last day. And Second Peter chapter 3, the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, The Lord returns unexpectedly, and the universe is destroyed. The elements melt with fervent heat. The earth is dissolved. This physical creation will be destroyed by fire. And this occurs on the last day. Not a thousand years after the last day, but on the last day. Then we considered, and this was the primary focus of last week's broadcast, a terrifying prediction of a great trouble which will occur before the second coming of Christ when the devil is loosed and rallies together Gog and Magog to go to war against the camp of the saints and the beloved city. In this conflict, the number of people fighting, according to Revelation chapter 20, are as innumerable as the sand of the sea, and they are stirred to battle 
by that wicked one at his loosing at the end of time. Also, this fighting is described as being in the four quarters of the earth. That means in the north, the south, the east, and the west. In every portion of this planet, there will be warring and fighting. But it is also described as being on the breadth of the earth, meaning that it will be a complete world war. Those two descriptions, the four quarters of the earth and the breadth of the earth. This means that it will be a very great world war a world war encompassing the entire globe, not just as we saw in World Wars I and II, where it affects all countries in some sense or another, and people from various countries throughout the globe send soldiers to one part of the world or two parts of the world to fight. This seems to be a sort of conflict that is all through the world. Now, I shared that with you not to alarm you, I shared that with you not to make you afraid or to be sensational. I shared that with you because you and I need to be prepared. We need to be ready to flee into the wilderness if it calls for it. We might need to defend our homes from an invading military if it calls for it. But we need to understand that what wins that day is not our stockpiles, our might, our arsenals, our weaponry, our nations or our militaries, but as we will see in just a moment, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to win that battle. He's going to end this fight as he returns again. Now, in this conflict, as we discussed last week, fighting is everywhere. While one common opinion of Gog and Magog is that they represent symbolically the enemies of God in general, I'm actually a bit more convinced that these represent an actual leader and his people, because in the Old Testament, Gog was a king. Magog had reference to his nation. And I have this view because so many other Bible prophecies predicted real rulers. Cyrus, king of Persia, was a real ruler. In Daniel, the various predictions of world empires, though they were depicted symbolically, had reference to actual empires and their rulers. Now, who this Gog and Magog are, we simply do not know. Whatever land Gog rules, we are unaware, unless Magog is to exist where it appeared on the map in the old times, which is north of Israel and a part of Turkey and Russia, allegedly. But we have no idea who this will ultimately be. Finally, last week, we considered their target. And this is the important thing for us to know. Their targets are the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And my loose grip theological view on this is that it depicts Christianized people, the camp of the saints, and Jerusalem, the beloved city. One thing is clear, there is great trouble to come before the second coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we shared last week, and as we've already said today, Jesus wins in the end, he personally defeats these foes in the midst of their assaults when he returns. And that is excellent news for the saints to hear. Today we consider something very similar, the man of sin. This is a character mentioned in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, who is rather similar, at least in his behavior and character or lack of it, to Gog leader of Magog in Revelation chapter 20. First of all, beginning with the context, 
Both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians are books that deal with the second coming of Christ and various aspects of the second coming. And Paul's reasons for this are rather simple initially. He writes his first letter, 1st Thessalonians, to this church in Thessalonica to comfort them after many of their brothers and sisters had died in martyrdom. He would say that they have suffered many things of their own countrymen as He, the Apostle Paul, had of his countrymen, the Jews, which did not believe. And so, in the close of that epistle, in chapter 4, he wrote of the resurrection of the dead. And to summarize that, the Lord will return again. He will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. He will bring deceased saints with him, that is to say, their souls, their spirits, He will raise the dead. The bodies which sleep in the ground will be revived, regardless of where they are. If they are lost at sea, if they were lost in a fire, if they were cremated, if they were eaten, devoured by wild animals, or if they have simply turned back into dust because of how long it's been since they died, he will raise them again. He will put them back together, and their souls will be reunited with their bodies but this time their bodies will be glorified. They will be raised in glorified bodies conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus raises the dead, and then we which are alive and remain, people who are living at the time of the second coming of Christ, they will be changed, and they will be carried up by the angels to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall they ever be with the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that We'll all be floating around in the air with the Lord forever. That statement, so shall they be with the Lord. This universe will be destroyed by fire. That includes the air. We look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There, in the new heavens and the new earth, will we be with the Lord forever as glorified human beings conformed to the image of Christ. Apparently, As Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, in reaction to this message of the second coming, some saints in Thessalonica assumed that Jesus was coming back immediately. Paul writes that he's returning one day. These Christians receive that. And while we should all live in hope that Christ is returning even before the end of the day, this was problematic for them because they seemed to, or at least some of them, seemed to cease from their work to just sit around and wait on Jesus to come back. Did Jesus come back in the first century? No, his return is not yet. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he's long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any of us us should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is to say, that every child of God is changed, that they all are made recipients of the grace of God, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit— the laws of God being written upon their hearts and their minds, their heart of stone being taken away and their heart of flesh given to them. In other words, Jesus isn't slack. He's not forgetful. He's not lazy because he hasn't returned. The reason Jesus hasn't returned is because every single person, every single person given to the Son by the Father in the covenant of grace before the foundation of the world, all those that the Father chose and gave to His Son, they've not yet been regenerated. Many of them have not yet been born into the world. And so, if Jesus returned in the first century, you and I never would have existed, but Jesus died for us, to save us, and He will have us. 
When that last heir of promise is born again, that is something that has to happen before Jesus returns, and it's only after that when Jesus shall return and take us to be with him. So these Thessalonians, they had ceased from their work. They ceased from whatever it was that they did as an occupation. So Paul devoted much of his second letter to them to set the record straight, as it were, to encourage them to get to work and to give details, things that they can watch for, signs of the times, as it were, regarding the time before Jesus returns. And as we'll see today, there are some things that we can look for. Sometimes Christians are shunned from looking to the signs and seasons, and I suppose this is because we have a desire in us as people to look to things that are sensational. We love science fiction. We love futuristic things. We love prophecies, even if they're not biblical prophecies. People love to sit and wonder about things that other people long ago had said about future events, whether it be Jules Verne or Nostradamus. We love to think about the future, and because of that, what the Bible says about the future sometimes can be run as if it's a science fiction film, and we certainly don't want to do that. But at the same time, Jesus talked about discerning the signs. He talked about when you see the sky a certain color, you know it's probably going to rain. And so when you look at the world, and the world looks like what we read in Revelation 20, last week, or what we're going to read in just a moment from Second Thessalonians chapter 2, you know that the second coming of Christ is nigh. Your redemption draws nigh. So we should look for signs of the times to tell us this looks to be when the Lord Jesus is going to come again. First of all, in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says that Jesus will return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. This is where he begins to set up this concept of the second coming, and he devotes most of the first chapter of Second Thessalonians to this concept. He acknowledges their suffering, he acknowledges their martyrdom, and he exhorts them to rest with the apostles, that when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. And so Jesus will return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And I would just add the people that know not God. This has reference to those who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the unsaved, or as we would also call them, the non-elect. They are left in their sins. Now, you and I are all depraved without Christ. We all were just like them, according to Ephesians chapter 2. But these people were never regenerated. They are left in their sins. They persecuted God's people. They rejected anything and everything to do with the Lord, and they will be judged according to their works. As we come to chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul says in verse 2, not to be soon shaken as if that day, the day of the second coming of Christ, is at hand. Paul says, We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus, and by our gathering together unto him, 
that you be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Don't think, just because I wrote to you about the resurrection, that this is something that's going to take place in the next week, or month, or year, or decade. There are other things that happen in the world prior to the second coming of Christ. And so then Paul begins to explain, the day of Christ shall not come except some other things happen first. And that's not saying that Christ can't return. What this is saying is that these things will happen before Christ returns. Now, let's read that passage together. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 3, and we will read through verse 9. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. We talked about that last week. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that program on our church website. The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and all lying wonders. Having read that, let's consider this passage about the man of sin one statement at a time. Verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. The second coming of Christ will not come until after, number one, a great falling away. And this concept of falling away means an apostasy, a departing from the faith. This corresponds with the departure from the faith mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Also referring to the end of time, Paul says that the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. There's coming a time of departure from the faith, Paul would say, to his son in the ministry, Timothy. So there is a departing from the faith. Some might argue that this has already happened, as biblical orthodoxy is more and more rare. However, this is probably pointing to something far greater than just the lack of orthodoxy among those who name the name of Christ. This seems to be a mass rejection of Christianity itself and the gospel. We've seen that in many cultures which were once Christian— But this seems to be much larger. Imagine if Christianity becomes so overwhelming and suddenly unpopular 
that people are just leaving Christianity in droves. Again, this has happened in many cultures, but while America might be departing Christianity, I have seen statistics from China that the underground church, within a decade, might have as many as 300 million people in it. Fathom that. There may be as many Christians in China in the near future as there are people in the United States of America. Christianity has a way of blazing through a community and a culture, and it really seems to be traveling around the world and will likely end up back where it started. Now, remember, at the end of time, that wicked one, the devil, is loosed, and so it's no surprise if people begin falling away. He was previously bound so that he could no longer deceive the nations as he once did. Now, he's no longer bound. He can deceive the nations. So throughout Gentile countries, there is a great apostasy throughout the whole world before the second coming of Christ. Next, from verse 3, the man of sin is revealed. This is the character that many call the Antichrist, though I'd point out that there are many Antichrists. In fact, the Gnostics were Antichrists, according to the Apostle John. But this is capital A Antichrist, the final great enemy of the Lord. He is revealed. Now, I often like to latch hold of that word revealed. We wonder, is it this politician or that politician or political figure or religious figure? All I can tell you is that if you are faithful to Christ and you keep your eye on him and you are endeavoring to be faithful to him and to study his word, it'll probably be pretty obvious to you because he is revealed to someone, and I would imagine that he is revealed to God's people. The man of sin will be revealed. There will be revelation of him. Now, as far as antichrists, again, there are many antichrists in the world. The Gnostics were antichrists. Anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is antichrist. There have been many, many antichrist figures in the history of the world, but this is the capital A Antichrist, the final great enemy of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's referred to here as the man of sin, the son of perdition, and down in verse 8, he is referred to as that wicked. These are important titles as two of them were used for other individuals, people that Bible scholars at that time and those especially of a Jewish ethnicity and religious heritage, would have been able to identify. So of these three titles, two have a backstory. First of all, this title, Man of Sin, communicates that he is of sin. Sin is his master. And he is of sin in the sense that he revels in it and engages in it. That is his agenda. He is the pursuit of rebellion personified. The Son of Perdition is an interesting title. This is actually the title of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus, the Son of Perdition. He was a thief who served Jesus to line his pockets and eventually betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Son of Perdition, this word perdition is a word that means destruction and sometimes refers to hell itself. So, son of hell, or son of destruction, isn't an unfitting or inaccurate rewording of this title. And lastly, he is referred to as that wicked. Now, this is very interesting because that was the title, that wicked, 
that the Jews gave Antiochus, a wicked Greek king who ruled in the Maccabean period between the completion of the Old Testament scriptures and the coming of the Lord in the 400-year period of silence, when God didn't send a prophet to the nation of Israel, the Jews were under Greek bondage and Antiochus sought their genocide. He ransacked the temple, he offered a pig on the altar, he set up an image to a false god, and he banned circumcision. He even attempted to eradicate the Jews altogether, and God smote him with an infection of worms so that he died. He was reportedly so putrid in smell from the worms that his servants could not tarry in his room to minister to him, and he even offered a letter of apology before dying, but it was too late. So adding these things together, he has the title of Judas Iscariot, he has the title of Antiochus, the son of perdition, and that wicked. Adding these together, and this is conjecture, perhaps this man is the ultimate servant of sin, who is, number one, a betrayer like Judas, and number two, a wicked political figure like Antiochus, bent on eradicating the Lord's people of this day. Further, look at verse 4. He opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. He opposes God and God's will in the world. So obviously he's going to be a persecutor. He will do what he can to resist Christianity and destroy the gospel. He likely, if he has political power, will try to ban the worship of God. He will certainly resist the truth. But notice he also exalts himself above all that is called God. So he wants to exalt himself, and he wants to be worshipped. This passage says that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, He has a God complex. He believes that he is a God, and he tricks other people into believing that he is. This is interesting because there's no temple today, is there? There's a couple of options for how that particular passage plays out. Number one, theologians and preachers have believed that the temple here has reference to the church, and this man sets himself up as a Messiah figure in the church and is worshipped as such. Many Protestants held this view and equated the man of sin with the Pope, and I certainly understand their point of view, especially during the Holy Roman Empire. Number two, the other view is that the temple here has reference to a new temple, a third temple, built in Jerusalem in which this figure sits and is worshipped. This would require, obviously, the destruction of the mosque presently there in Jerusalem and the construction of a new temple. And I'll just say this, if the temple is rebuilt, the church is the place in which God is worshipped, and he is worshipped in spirit and in truth. Jesus already set the record straight for us on this, and true worship in John chapter 4. Don't be deceived into going to some new temple to worship. You may just meet the man of sin there. Notice regarding his deceptive powers that this man of sin uses the power of an unbound Satan to show signs and lying wonders. People will be bewitched by him as he appears to have the ability to perform miraculous acts. No doubt he will be a skilled orator. He will be very persuasive as well. A short note on the man of sin, whoever he may be. Some equate him with Gog, ruler of Magog, from Revelation 20, as we studied last week, and this may very well be the case, or it may not be. There may be two separate people afflicting 
God's people at the end of time. So what happens to this man? Well, what happened to Gog and Magog in last week's study? Jesus destroys them at his second coming. So what will happen to the man of sin? We'll look at verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Lord shall consume him with the spirit of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. As with Gog and the enemies of the Lord, Jesus will personally come and end this battle, delivering us, judging his enemies, and taking us home to be with him forevermore. The church won't defeat this man of sin, just like America won't defeat Gog and Magog. Jesus will return, and Jesus shall have the victory. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.